this is Evan Knappen, and you are listening to Gun Lawyer Podcast. I'm really happy to be speaking to you. I've got some great and interesting stories to tell, and I know we're going to have a lot of fun. What I want to explore today, because a lot of folks have wondered about this too, you know, I have kind of a unique job, really. Not being a lawyer so much, but being a gun lawyer, that is definitely uh, pretty unique. I mean, there are other lawyers that focus in the area of guns, but there aren't too many of us, and we basically all kind of know each other. The question is, you know, what influenced me to become a gun lawyer? I mean, you know, I could go around ambulance chasing and make some real money here, right? No, but this is really why. Well, of course, it has to do with my love of the Second Amendment and my love of firearms and and uh, fighting for our rights and 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 being part of the gun culture, you know, a shooter and a hunter and a collector and all that. Sure, but what I want to tell you about are, are the people that influenced my life that actually helped put me on the path to where I am uh, today. And uh, this is something that many of us can look back and on, on how we got to where we are and look at these great people that, are, that were influencers. And it, it, you too can be an influencer, and I hope that I've helped influence many people on paths in their life. But the folks that have helped me tremendously one of the earliest folks was a good friend of mine named Gus. And when I was in junior high school, I was 13 years old, and I became friends with Gus. And Gus was the head custodian of our school. And as a young boy, I was interested in guns and hunting and pursuits like that. And someone had mentioned that at one point, Gus had been a gunsmith. And I said, boy, that's really cool. And he was a nice guy. And I started talking with him about guns. And sure enough, he had been a gunsmith. And then he went and uh, he had left home when he was like 12. And he learned that trade. But then he learned uh, how to handle the big boilers, you know, got his gold seal and did his uh, job there. And uh, that was his a career, but his love still was of firearms. And I remember speaking with him any chance I got, you know, recess or a break in school, and I would ask him questions, and he would explain things, and history of guns, and all kinds of great stuff. He really was a fountain of knowledge about it, and I was in, enthralled with learning all this. And one day, uh, Gus uh, said to me, he said, hey, I have a rifle that I'm looking to sell. It's a historic rifle. It's a Remington rolling block rifle, you know, from the late 1800s. And it was a military model. And uh, he's like, uh, you know, I know you love this and all. And so I'll tell you what, I'll let you have it for $50. And I was like, well, as a kid, that was still a decent amount of money, let me tell you, but it was a good deal. And he said, just ask your dad if it's okay. And I'll bring it by, and you can buy it for me. And I'm thinking to myself today, could you imagine the, let's just say, the janitor of a school today selling a 13-year-old boy a rifle? How do you think that would fly today, folks? Right. 
But he knew my dad, and I'm going to talk about my dad in a little bit. He knew my dad from the flea markets because we would always go to English Town Flea Market, which was the big flea market in New Jersey, finding all sorts of collectibles. And so he knew my dad from the flea market. And he said, ask your dad. And I asked my dad, who was a premier collector of political items. Matter of fact, he even wrote the book on uh, collecting political Americana uh, and uh, the collector guide. Uh, and um, anyway, he would take me every Saturday to the flea markets. And uh, he knew about collecting and the history, and, and he had no problem. He said, Evan, I know you're fine. If you want to buy that rifle, that military historic rifle, go right ahead. Tell Gus I don't have any problem with it. So that's great. And I told my buddy Gus about it. And he came by the house, and he dropped off this Remington rolling block. But I'll tell you what else he dropped off. And this, I know, was his plan looking back. He dropped off boxes, boxes of gun books. I mean, boxes of shotgun news, boxes of gun magazines, and boxes of some of the top gun books of the day. Basically, I think he gave me, although he never said it, his gun library and threw it all into the deal without me even knowing. And I read every one of those things multiple times. Every one of, you know, to this day, I still have many of those books. They're classic references on guns. And they influenced and educated me by what he did there. And, you know, I stayed friends with Gus for my whole life till he uh, passed away a number of years ago from cancer. And he and I would go to gun shows together and hit the gun shops together. And we'd work on, you know, taught me things on fixing and repairing guns and collecting guns and how they worked. And really helped my interest grow and blossom with firearms. What a great guy. And I really miss him to this day. But his influence um, lives on. And it's people like that in our lives that are just wonderful and help make us who we are. Now, the same with my father, because my father, I, I was very blessed to have a great childhood with my dad. Every, every Saturday, we would go to the flea markets together. My father was a college professor, one of the few conservative college professors, believe it or not. And he taught constitutional law. That was what he taught at the university. And we would go, and he would collect political items. But you see, it was a good 40 minutes to the flea market from our house. And we'd get up like 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'd have this great father-son time. And we would talk the whole way there, the whole way back and during. And he would teach me about the Constitution, about history. And I just learned so much. And then when you're at the flea market, you could actually experience the, the, the history when you could hold an antique or some collectible of a certain period. And my father would point out things that most people wouldn't even know what they were because they've been obsoleted. And you know, I'd say, hey, you know what this is? And I'd be like, no, what is it? Oh, well, that is one of the tools that hung from the Conestoga wagon. And I was like, wow. And then he had a tool collection. And I was like, who would know, right? My dad did. He would go through photographs and he would pick out from Car de Visites and all by face famous politicians, presidents, vice presidents, vice presidents of the losing candidate, senators from the eight. I mean, he was amazing. And I would learn about this and learn about it. 
And I also learned how to deal with people because at the flea market, you run into all kinds of people and learning to deal with people and be able to have a good rapport and deal with them is vital. And that's one of the things I really learned there as well, how to negotiate, how to be friendly and how to uh, communicate what you want, what you're looking for. And I remember, you know, my dad at the time, no one even knew what a political item was. He would have to educate. I'm looking for a political, you know, collectibles, buttons, badges. And he had a little spiel that he explained. And many times we'd go there and go, oh, professor, I brought you some of those political items. They call them over to the table. You know, here they are. And he would buy these and it was great, you know, and, and, and we learned about that. And I saw many amazing things there. Things not only for sale that are antiques, but even things that were experiences in human nature. And I remember one time I am in one of the aisles and there was this long aisle that ran from the entrance all the way to the back and that's how the cars exited. And I remember at one time this old uh, black man was in a old pickup truck and he had all kinds of uh, essentially junk for sale. I mean, he, he was a junk man, which was fine and he had things hanging from the vehicle. And this was, you know, he'd come to the flea market and make some extra money selling his wares. And uh, and he's just driving and suddenly, right in front of him, I, I suddenly hear all this noise because he had to slam on his brakes just and all his stuff shook and jingled. And, and there's this white punk teenager guy right in front, just walked in front of his vehicle without any care and forced him to have to make this short stop. And we all turned, everyone in the aisle, to look at this. And this guy then kicks the grill of the vehicle of this man. It was outrageous. It's the, totally this punk's fault. And he kicks the grill. And we're all like, oh, my God, what a jerk, right? Well, suddenly, the man behind the wheel jumps out of the vehicle. And he has an axe over his head and he comes at the guy and this kid is so petrified he trips over his own feet and he's making like a snow angel in the dirt trying to get away and the guys and we're all watching waiting for this guy to split his head open and the guy just looked at him pointed and said <laughs> laughed at him like that got back in the vehicle and drove away. And the whole row was like cheering. We are all like, it was the greatest thing. And man, that's the kind of life lessons you see, you know? So these are great influencers, not only in terms of your career, but in building you as a person. And um, later and all during this time, I had another great influence. That was my uncle, Morty, Uncle Morty, fought in World War II. He was a Navy Navy pilot, and he uh, was quite the fighter, and uh, he even re-enlisted back for Korea. No, he wasn't going to miss a war, that's for sure, not my uncle. And he brought back all kinds of guns, and, you know, I would visit with him, and he would tell me the stories, and he gave me many of the guns that he brought back, some beautiful things, and... Uh, uh, he was also the chief of detectives in Atlantic County. And, man, he had great stories to tell. And uh, one of my favorites by him, just to tell you the kind of guy he was, is right before he was going to leave for Korea, 
He's in the detective uh, department there, and they get a call about jewelry robbery in this part of Atlantic City. So his men went one way, and he took his unmarked detective car and went to this other section. This is about midnight in Atlantic City, but it's still lit up at trolley cars then, you know, too. And he's in this one alleyway, and suddenly the guy who fit the description drops down in front of him from uh, from the building. And he looks at him, and the guy's in a tank T-shirt type deal, and he's got like a classic cloth bag of the goods, you know. And he, and my uncle, you know, stop, you know, to stop him. And he runs, and he runs. So my uncle draws his pistol, which at the time the detectives carried a thirty-two Smith and Wesson, believe it or not, a thirty-two Terrier, and he fires all of the rounds in that revolver at the fleeing uh, crook, and the guy falls down from being hit. My uncle puts the gun back, runs up to the guy who gets up and takes off and grabs the fire escape and starts climbing it. So my uncle's chasing him up this fire escape ladder and he's climbing and he grabs him by the belt and he takes his flat sap that he carried in his leg pouch and he starts bashing the guy's head with the flat sap. Blood's pouring, you know, the guy's not giving up. The guy unbuckles his pants, slips his pants from my uncle, runs the rest of the way up. My uncle takes off after him again. Now they're on the rooftops. He loads back his uh, 30, is a terrier, his 32. Boom, 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 boom. Fires all the shots, right? Next thing you know, bang, from behind him comes a shot. My uncle hits the dirt, hits the roof, right? Turns one of his own men. He got off the trolley and thought the plane closed because it was shooting at the guy he's like, no, he almost shot me, you dummy, right? And now the guy got away. So he has to then leave for Korea. He doesn't know whatever happened to this guy till he gets back. And then they find out that, yeah, he ended up in the hospital. Every round was in him that my uncle shot. Every round of the 32. He was obviously high on some kind of drugs, and uh, that's how he got away. But my, my grandmother... Originally, she was upset that he was going back into the war, into Korea. He didn't need to do this. And she was didn't really approve of his decision. He said, look, my own men are shooting at me here. How bad can it be? So that's the kind of man he was. And boy, do I miss him. But when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about that and have some a question from a listener that I think you'll all find very interesting. So see you in a few. For over 30 years, attorney Evan Knappen has seen what rotten laws do to good people. That's why he's dedicated his life to fighting for the rights of America's gun owners. A fearsome courtroom litigator fighting for rights, justice, and freedom. An unrelenting gun rights spokesman tearing away at anti-gun propaganda to expose the truth. Author of six best-selling books on gun rights, including Knappen on Gun Law a bright orange gun law Bible that sits atop the desk of virtually every lawyer, police chief, firearms dealer, and savvy gun owner. That's what made Evan Knappen America's gun lawyer. Gun laws are designed to make you a criminal. Don't become the innocent victim of a vicious anti-gun legal system. This is the guy you want on your side. 
Keep his name and number in your wallet and hope you never have to use it. But if you live, work, or travel with a firearm, the deck is already stacked against you. You can find him on the web at evannappen.com or follow the link on the Gun Lawyer resource page. Evan Knappen, America's Gun Lawyer. You're listening to Gun Lawyer with attorney Evan Knappen. Available wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I am a lawyer. I am a lawyer. Okay, so uh, I got some more great stories to tell you, but I would like to take this moment just to respond to a listener's question that I think you'll all appreciate because it's uh, advice that we could all use. And this is from Robert J. And what Robert asks is, uh, he says he's traveling uh, from basically New Jersey or through New Jersey to Vermont. And he has a Utah carry license. Now, of course, Vermont is a uh, a constitutional carry state. You don't need any license. But he's concerned because he's driving with hollow points to Vermont. And he's also driving through New York. And it concerns him, even though in New Jersey, it seems like it would be illegal. And he wants to know what's right and wants to decide if it's worth it to bring his gun and any help would be great. So let me just tell you about interstate transport. If you want to transport your firearm interstate, there is a federal law that allows you to do it as long as you do it by way of certain conditions. It's under Title 18, 926A. And what the statute requires is that your guns be cased and unloaded. Best is have them in a lock box, your gun unloaded in a separate lock container. It's the best way to do it and not have anything readily accessible to your passenger compartment. If you have a trunk, put the gun in the trunk. If you don't, put in this lockbox, you know, toward the back of the vehicle and have your ammunition separate. And as long as you're going from one place where you legally can possess the firearm and the ammunition to another place where you legally can possess it. So assuming you're not starting in New Jersey, but you're starting, let's say, in Pennsylvania where you're legal, and then you are ending up in Vermont where you're legal, you don't even need a license, then federal law preempts you for your uh, travel, as long as you travel in the method that I just talked about. However, that law is great that it exists, but it is not as strong as it should be. And there have been proposals to strengthen it, but we haven't gotten those uh, through. And it is a little bit vague. One, The second part talks about ammunition. The first part doesn't, but ammunition should be covered. But you know what? Hollow-nose ammunition is a felony to possess in New Jersey, felony-level offense. Each round can carry up to 18 months in state's prison. Now, it's true we could argue 926A if you were to be stopped and arrested, but remember, this becomes a defense we have to present, and I'm sure you'd rather not be a guest of the uh, Iron Bar Hilton in New Jersey if you can avoid it. So even though we could argue that it's covered under, your best bet is not to transport uh, prohibited items like hollow-nose ammunition. Also, New Jersey and New York and others have magazine bans. And although the gun is covered, a firearm's covered, what about the magazine? And again, another legal issue not really addressed. So your best bet is not to have a, a magazine that exceeds the 10 rounds or whatever the limit is through the bad states that you have to transport to. And again, even though you could be defended successfully 
the best bet is to avoid even having to be in that situation. But as a fallback and an insurance policy, you can rely on Title 18, 926A to transport interstate. If you want to know more about it, I have a whole chapter in my book uh, on New Jersey gun law about interstate transport. The NRA on the website has information on interstate transport, and it's a good law that has helped save a lot of people, but still be smart about it. Now, I'll tell you, one of the other major influences in my life was working for the one of the first gun law firms as a new lawyer, one of the first gun law firms in America. And I went to law school in New York, and I worked right out of, actually clerked while in law school and then worked for the gun law firm when I got out of law school. And that was the gun law firm of Benenson and Cates. And Mark Benenson and Don Cates, great folks. Uh, fortunately, they're both uh, deceased now, but they were both quite influential in the world of gun law and its development. Mark uh, Benenson had, believe it or not, been the uh, previously had been president of Amnesty International. And uh, you would think that might be a left-leaning group, but it was founded by his cousin, Peter Benenson. And Mark was a solid pro-gun advocate, as there ever was. And Don Cates, he was out in California, a criminologist, wrote prolifically for all kinds of journals and magazines. And and uh, by joining kind of nationally like this, he had both coasts uh, covered with the firm. It was very interesting, and Mark did a lot of gun work in New York. And uh, one of the, I really learned about the practice of gun law through his pioneering of the area of gun law. And we dealt with many interesting and fascinating cases. Matter of fact, uh, early on, when some of you may recall the so-called Subway Vigilante, who we later learned was Bernie Getz. Uh, that case, originally, it was a mystery. Who is the Subway Vigilante? Who is it? No one knew. They were trying to find out. Well, I was one of a handful of persons who knew who the Subway Vigilante was because he had come to Benenson and Cates, having been referred by Masada Ayub. And why? Because Getz, after he did his thing, uh, went up to New Hampshire to talk to one of the experts in self-defense, and he knew in New York at that time it was Benenson and Cates as the gun law firm. So uh, we knew about this, and uh, eventually it was brought out about who it was. But I got to tell you, I met Bernie and knew him, and unfortunately this is something where there's a lesson to be learned for many of us. And uh, Bernie really believed kind of in a naive way that everything would be fine if he just went and told the police what happened. Oh, my gosh. And it was not a good idea to do that, and we didn't want him to do that, but he insisted, and he went and told the police what happened, and that's where all of his statements became critical, and it was a creation of more of a problem for him because one of the things that he even told the police, and you may have even heard the famous you don't look so bad, have another. Actually, he never said that, even though he said that he said that. And part of the thing at the trial was to actually show that he never said what they claimed that he said he said. Now, look, when you start getting down those kind of roads, it can create much more problems. So you don't really want to 
speak to the police unless you have an attorney who is advising you to do that. And uh, just keep your mouth shut. It is important to you to stand on your Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Ask for your attorney, then listen to your attorney, and don't go making statements because that will be used against you seriously and can cause the problem. Some of you, you know, uh, at that time, there was, a, <clears throat> there was actually a joke going on. I guess it's somewhat of a dad joke, but I'm going to torture you with it. When you go to a bar and you order a Bernie Getz, what is that? Well, it's five shots and a screwdriver. So, but learn the lesson of not talking to the police. It's a good thing. Also with Benenson and Cates, they were counsel to Christie's Arms and Armor for the famous Christie's auction. And one of the things we would go, do in the firm was to go and evaluate whatever items that Christie's got in for legality and other things and make sure that things proceeded properly under the law. But it also meant that I had the opportunity to hold in my hand some of the just historic firearms and weapons. And man, that was so cool. I actually held in my hand Winston Churchill's broom handle. His actual broom handle pistol, that was his through the Boer War, etc. And that was just really cool. I held the number one Colt single action army, serial number one that they had. It was There was so much cool stuff. So that kind of really fun, and it was great to do that. And then he did lots of licensing to help people get licenses, which was really tough to do in New York and other cases defending law-abiding criminals where I got to see firsthand how the ridiculous gun laws turned law-abiding citizens into criminals. And uh, Benenson was a great teacher. And when I came into my own as a gun lawyer, I had a Jersey practice in New Jersey, but I stayed associated with them. And together, our firms brought the first challenge to New Jersey's assault farm law and we actually made history because for the first time we actually got a federal injunction against a state gun law way back then and it's a coalition b florio case and we were able to take a bite out of it uh at that time and it was uh, very exciting to do that and so as all this experience I really was focused on building, and I remember asking Don Cates, I said, look, I want to just, I want to do gun law, and I'll never forget Don Cates' advice. Don Cates' advice was, nobody can make a living doing just gun law. That's what he told me. No one can do that. And I said, really? Well, I'm going to try. So here I am, still trying after over 30 years, and, uh, and it's been okay. I've enjoyed it and love it. So... Don, as much as you taught me, uh, I think you were actually wrong about that. But you were right about so many other things, of course. So uh, it was really great to have that kind of influence and, and training. And all these things build up to today where we're now beyond anything that it was when I started in terms of the unbelievable anti-gun laws that have passed, the state's particularly New Jersey, having gone to such extremes, creating draconian laws that turn law-abiding citizens into criminals. It's really the front line of the battle for our Second Amendment rights. And we've had so many cases that have come out of there because of just how extreme and outrageous, and you've heard me talk about these cases, 
And uh, this was really where I got my start, but it has not changed too much from the foundation. And the foundation is the gun laws themselves being wrong and contrary to the Second Amendment, contrary to our rights. And it is something where the law-abiding citizen is the one who becomes the victim of the gun law. And that's why when you hear the antis talk about victims of gun violence, my thought is, yeah, what about all the victims of gun laws? And that's what they create. And that's where the unfairness comes in. And that's where you need to protect yourself. It's vital, particularly in these days, and you know it's going to get worse. We're in for a battle of our lives as the politics have changed in America. And the money is there like never before to crush our rights from billionaires that are misguided and out to get us because they've freely admitted that they hate us, us being the gun owner. And this is, and so what I'm doing here with this podcast is a voice to help protect law abiding gun owners. And one of the other things is the inner circle that I've established. And I would love for you to join the inner circle. Let me tell you, folks, if you can keep fellow gun owner from becoming a law-abiding criminal, tell them to listen to Gun Lawyer Radio. Visit our website at gun.lawyer, and you can take a look there and join our inner circle right on our website. It's free, and with the inner circle, you're going to get the inside story from me, Evan Knappen. And I'll be giving you tricks and tips and insights and fun. Sign up. It's free. Go to gun.lawyer and join our inner circle. And it's now more important than ever as the big tech silences those that are in favor of freedom and protecting our rights across the board. And this will give us the ability to still communicate because our adversaries are trying to shut us up and I don't want us to be shut up and so by joining the inner circle we'll be able to maintain our lines of communication no matter what remember this helps us to communicate with you to touch base and let you know what's going on big tech doesn't care about our gun rights they don't like us they're trying to shut us up the inner circle is this way for us to stay in contact despite their efforts these big issues are going to be coming up. You know, we got executive orders, all kinds of nasty things the Biden administration is planning. You're going to need to know what to do, how to protect yourself, what loopholes there are, and how to use them. Remember, loopholes are just freedom, finding a way. I'm going to fill you in on all that. You're going to want to know. How are you going to deal with things like the next pistol brace ban when they put it back. You know that's what they're going to do, even though they've withdrawn it for now. How are you going to deal with the executive order by Biden on private gun transfers or online sales of not only guns and ammo, but parts, even parts, he wants to prohibit? I mean, his agenda is insane. How are you going to deal with it? I'm going to try to help you with all that. So join our inner circle, and you'll be able to protect yourself and your rights. Please subscribe, rate the show, help me get the word out. I'm depending on you. This is Evan Knappen reminding you 
Gun laws don't protect honest citizens from criminals. They protect criminals from honest citizens. Gun Lawyer is a Counterthink Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. Reach us by emailing evan at gun.lawyer. The information and opinions in this broadcast do not constitute legal advice. Consult a licensed attorney in your state.